0: We present, Monkey. An abridged translation of the great Chinese classic, Journey to the West, written by Wu Chung-Un, translated by Arthur Whaley, and narrated by Bob Jones. Chapter 13. It was three days before the full moon, in the ninth month of the thirteenth year of Chung Quan, when Tripitaka, seen off by the emperor and all his ministers, left the gates of Chang'an. After a day or two of hard riding, he reached the temple of the Law Cloud. The abbot and some five hundred priests, drawn up in two files, ushered him into the temple. After supper, sitting by lamplight, They discussed questions of religion and the purpose of Tripitaka's quest. Some spoke of how wide the rivers were that he must cross, and how high the mountains that he must climb. Some spoke of the roads being infested by panthers and tigers, some of precipices hard to circumvent, and demons impossible to overcome. Tripitaka said nothing, but only pointed again and again at his own heart. The priests did not understand what he meant, and when at last they asked him to explain, he said, It is the heart alone that can destroy them. I made a solemn vow, standing before the Buddha's image, to carry through this task, come what may. Now that I have started, I cannot go back till I have reached India, seen Buddha, got the scriptures, and turned the wheel of the law. That our holy sovereign's great dynasty may be forever secure. A loyal, a valiant cleric, they all cried in chorus as they escorted Xianzang to his bed. Next morning, Tripitaka rose early, eager to be on his way again. It was now far on into the autumn, and if he had waited till cock-crow, it would have been the fourth watch before he started. A bright moon glistened on the frosty ground as he and his two followers set out. They had not gone ten leagues when they came to a mountain range. The path they had been following vanished, and the going became excessively difficult. It seemed only too probable that they had missed their way. They were discussing the position, when suddenly the ground gave way under their feet, and they fell into a deep pit, the horse floundering on. They had hardly recovered from their first astonishment, when they heard voices calling, Seize them! Seize them! And looking up, saw fifty or sixty ogres crowding round the hole. The three travelers were hauled to the surface and Tripitaka when he could summon enough courage to look around saw a demon king of the most terrifying aspect who was obviously the leader of the gang. He gave orders that the captives should be bound and a band of lesser ogres had already trussed them up and were about to prepare them for eating when there was a bustle outside and someone announced that my lord of the Bear Mount and the steer hermit had arrived. Looking up, Tripitaka saw a swarthy fellow followed by a great hulking fellow. The demon king hastened to welcome them as they came lurching and swaggering along. General Yin, said the one, you're looking very pleased with yourself. I congratulate you. General Yin, said the other, you're looking in very fine form. You may congratulate yourself. How have you two been getting on? asked the Demon King. Just managing to exist, said the one. Just jogging on, somehow, said the other. While they were talking, one of Tripitaka's followers, who had been trussed very tight, screamed with pain. Where did you find these three? asked the swarthy fellow. I didn't find them, said the Demon. They just came here. Of their own accord. The hermit laughed. May we venture to impose on your hospitality, he asked. If you will do me the favour, said the demon. There is more than we should get through at one meal, said the Lord of the Bear Mountain. How about eating two and keeping one? The demon accordingly gave orders that the two followers should be carved up at once. The heads, hearts, and livers were to be offered to the guests. He himself bespoke the arms and legs. The other odds and ends were to go to the sundry lesser ogres. A frightful scrunching ensued for all the world like a tiger devouring its prey. By the time the meal was over, Tripitaka was almost dead with horror and fright. It was now beginning to grow light and the two guests retired. Tripitaka was in the depths of despair and had lost all hope of escaping with his life when suddenly an old man appeared carrying a heavy staff. Coming forward he pulled at Tripitaka's ropes which fell away at the first touch. Then he blew into his face with the result that Tripitaka suddenly revived, and falling upon his knees, profusely thanked his rescuer. "'That's all right,' said the old man. "'Pray, get up, and tell me, have you lost anything?' "'My two followers,' said Tripitaka, have been devoured by ogres. What has become of my luggage and horse I have no idea.' "'I see a horse over there,' said the old man and two saddle-packs. I don't know whether by any chance they belong to you?" Tripitaka looked in the direction in which the old man was pointing with his staff, and there, sure enough, was the horse, saddle-packs and all, quite unharmed. "'What is this place?' asked Tripitaka, brightening a little. "'And what are the three ogres that haunt it?' "'It is called the Two-Forked Ridge, said the old man, and is a place much infested by tigers and wolves. You would have done well to keep clear of it. As for the ogres, the hermit is a buffalo spirit, the lord of the bear mountain is a bear spirit, and General Yin is a tiger spirit. The other lesser ogres are all animal spirits of one kind and another. The purity of your inner nature made it impossible for them to eat you. Follow me, and I will put you onto the proper path." Full of gratitude, Tripitaka adjusted the saddle-packs, and pulling the horse by its halter, succeeded in getting it out of the hole. When they were back on the right track, Tripitaka tied up the horse at the path-side, and turned to thank the old man only to discover that he was already rapidly disappearing into the sky, on the back of a white crane. Presently there came fluttering down from the sky a paper strip on which was written, I am the spirit of the planet Venus. I came down to earth on purpose to rescue you. During the course of your journey you will at all times enjoy the assistance of spiritual beings who will see to it that you do not succumb to the perils that will beset you on your path." Tripitaka bowed in the direction whence the strip had come, and then set off alone. He travelled over difficult country for half a day without seeing any sign of human habitation. He was now very hungry, and the road was extremely precipitous. He was at the height of his difficulties when he heard two tigers roaring just ahead of him and saw behind him several huge serpents twisting and twining. To make matters worse, on his left were some species of deadly scorpion, and on his right a wild beast of unknown species. To cope single-handed with such a situation was clearly impossible, and there was nothing for it but to resign himself to his fate. Soon his horse sank quivering onto its knees and refused to budge. Suddenly a medley of tigers and wolves with other wild and fearful creatures set upon him altogether. He would have been utterly lost had there not at this very moment appeared a man with a three-pronged spear in his hand and bow and arrows at his waist. "'Save me, save me!' cried Tripitaka. The man rushed forward and, throwing aside his spear, raised Tripitaka from his knees. "'Do not be afraid,' he said. "'I am a hunter and I came out to find a couple of mountain creatures to eat for my supper. You must forgive me for intruding upon you so unceremoniously. Tripitaka thanked the hunter and explained what brought him to this place. I live near here, said the hunter, and spend all my time in dealing with tigers and serpents and the like, so that such creatures are afraid at the sight of me and run away. If you indeed come from the court of Tang, we are fellow countrymen, for the frontier of the empire is a little way beyond here. Do not be afraid, but follow me back to my house, where you and your horse can rest. Tomorrow I will put you on your way. Tripitaka was glad to accept, and set out in company with the hunter. When they had crossed the neighbouring ridge, there came once more the sound of fierce growling. That's a mounting cat coming, said the hunter. You sit here and I will catch it for supper. Tripitaka was again transfixed by fright. The hunter seized his spear and striding forward began to stalk the tiger. Suddenly a great striped tiger sprang right in his face. Tripitaka, who was entirely unused to watching such dangerous encounters, was once more on the verge of collapse. Man and tiger contended at the foot of the slope for about an hour. At last, the creature began to tire, and the hunter was able to dispatch it by a thrust right mm. through the chest. Dragging it away by the ear from the pool of blood in which it lay, the hunter, without showing the slightest sign of concern, hauled it to the road. Remarking casually, This is a bit of luck. Here is meat enough to last you for several days. Tripitaka was lost in admiration. Sir, he said, you are a veritable god of the mountains. I'll think that is going too far, said the hunter. It was a very simple matter. Then, with a spear in one hand and dragging the dead tiger with the other, he set out upon the road, followed by Tripitaka leading the horse. They soon came to a mountain farm. At the gate the hunter let go of the tiger and called to the farmhands to come and carry it inside, skin it and get it prepared for cooking. For I have a guest, he said. Then he brought Tripitaka in and presented him to his mother, explaining that he was a priest of great piety, who was on a mission to fetch scriptures from India. Tomorrow, she said, is the anniversary of your father's death. Let us ask his reverence to say a mass, recite a scripture or two, and then start off again the next day. The hunter, though a rough burly tiger slayer, was very attentive to his mother, and as soon as she made this suggestion, he ordered incense paper to be prepared, and prevailed upon Tripitaka to spend the next day at the farm. It was now getting late, and the farmhands set out tables, and brought in several dishes of cooked tiger flesh, which they had laid all sizzling in front of their masters and his guest. "'I must tell you,' said Tripitaka, that I was admitted to the order almost as soon as I left my mother's womb and have never in my life indulged in meats of this kind. The hunter thought for a while. My family, he said at last, has on the contrary for generations past been accustomed to eat meat. So what are we to do? I am sorry to have asked you to do what your conscience forbids. There is no need to worry, broke in the hunter's mother. We can easily make him a vegetarian dish. And she told her daughter-in-law to boil some rice and make a salad. The hunter, removing himself to some distance, sat down to a meal of tiger's flesh, unseasoned and unsalted, with serpent's flesh, fox flesh, rabbit and strips of dried venison served in high-piled dishes. He was just beginning and had hardly raised his chopsticks when he saw that Tripitaka, his palms pressed together, was reciting what he took for some passage from a holy book. Very much taken aback, the hunter dropped his chopsticks and rose to his feet. But after reciting only a few sentences, Tripitaka announced that he was ready to be served. That was a very short scripture, said the hunter. It wasn't a scripture, said Tripitaka. I was saying grace. You priests certainly have some queer ways, said the hunter. One would think that you could at least take a meal without saying your prayers. After dinner the hunter took him to a thatched building at the back of the house. The walls were hung with bows, arrows, slings and the like, and over a beam hung two fetid bloody tiger skins. The hunter invited him to take a seat, but Tripitaka was very ill at ease in the presence of these gruesome and forbidding objects, and hurried out of the building. They soon came to a large paddock, where great masses of chrysanthemums piled their gold and maples blazed their crimson. The hunter called and ten fat deer sprang out of the bushes and, not at all disconcerted by the arrival of human beings, came up nuzzling and gambling. "'These are no doubt creatures that you have tamed,' said Tripitaka. "'Yes,' said the hunter. Just as in Chang'an people lay up stores of money and farmers lay up stores of grain, so we hunters must always keep a few tame beasts as a provision against dark days. Immediately after breakfast next day, the whole household assembled, and Tripitaka was asked to begin his recitation. He washed his hands, and assisted by the hunter, burnt incense in front of the house shrine. Then, bowing to the house shrine, he beat on his wooden fish, and after reciting spells for the purification of the mouth and the body, he read a text on the salvation of souls. After this, The hunter asked him to write a prayer slip for the salvation of the dead, and he recited parts of the Diamond Cutter Scripture and the Scripture of Quen Yin, each in a clear and loud voice. After the midday meal he recited chapters from the Lotus Scripture and the Scripture of Amitabha, and then told the story of the monks washing away their evil karma. As the day drew on. He burned further incense along with paper horses and prayer slips. When all was over they went to bed. That night the soul of the hunter's father appeared in dream to every member of the household, saying that he had for long been striving in vain to escape from the torments of the lower world. Now thanks to the prayers and recitations of this pious priest, the evil karma that restrained him was wiped away, and Yama had ordered that he should be reborn as the child of a rich landowner. He asked them to tender his warmest thanks to his benefactor. When the hunter's wife told him of her dream, it turned out that he too had had a similar dream. Presently his mother came along, saying that she had something to tell him. They both burst out laughing when she told them her dream, which was the same as their own. The whole household was then roused, and all in chorus thronged round him, saying, Reverend Sir, we cannot sufficiently express to you our gratitude. You have saved the soul of our late master. I cannot think that anything I have done can deserve such thanks, said Tripitaka. They told him of the dreams, and he was indeed delighted. They asked him to accept silver, but he absolutely refused. If you will have the goodness to escort me on the first stage of the journey, he said, that will be ample recompense. The women hurriedly made ready some dried provisions and the hunter, taking with him a few servants, all armed with their hunting gear, set out with Tripitaka upon the highway. Mountain scenery of indescribable beauty stretched out before them. Towards noon they came to a gigantic mountain, up which Tripitaka began to climb with great pains while the hunter sprang up it as though he had been walking on flat ground. Halfway up the hunter halted, and turning to Tripitaka, he said, I fear at this point we must part. I entreat you to take me just one stage farther, begged Tripitaka. Sir, said the hunter, you do not know. This mountain is called the Mountain of the Two Frontiers. Its east side belongs to our land of Tang. On the west side lies the land of the Tartars. The wolves and tigers on the far side I have not subjected. Moreover, I have not the right to cross this frontier. You must go on alone." Tripitaka wrung his hands in despair, clutched at the hunter's sleeve, and wept copiously. At this point there came from under the mountain a stentorian voice, crying repeatedly. The master has come. Both Tribitaka and the hunter started in great surprise. If you do not know whose voice it was they heard, listen to what is told in the next chapter. Listening to Monkey, an abridged translation of the great Chinese classic Journey to the West, written by Wu Cheng'en, translated by Arthur Whaley, and narrated by Bob Jones.